Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I hand over to Rowan now, who's going to continue in our talk in Hebrews. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Uh, I have some good news for you, which you might be going, oh, well, that's good, that's a, that's a change. Shouldn't be a change. Uh, evangelical, you come to the EU, the Evangelical Union at Sydney University. Evangelical, the word means of the gospel. So you've come to the, the gospel union. But then gospel just means grand public announcement, usually of good news. So the Evangelical Union is really the good news group at Sydney University. So you've come to the good news, a meeting of the good news group. And so if you're not going to hear good news when you come to the good news group, we've got a real problem. So you should expect every time you come to an EU public meeting that you're going to hear some good news. And if not, the speaker has really not done their job. So I've got some good news to share today. And that's, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you straight. No, no, um, keeping you in suspense. Here it is, right? The good news is Jesus gets you. He gets you. In all your complexities, in all the wonderful ways that God has made you, in all the issues that you have to face, all the struggles you have, all the opportunities that are open up before you, Jesus gets you 100%. And he wants to help. That's the good news that we get in this little section that we're looking at in the book of Hebrews in the Christian New Testament. Jesus gets you 100% and he wants to help. Would you like to know more about that? Yeah, it'd be good to know more about that. It'd be a good thing, right? So if you've got your Bible there, maybe you could open it up, find Hebrews chapter 4 or call it up on your phone. It's worth just pondering though, it is really great, isn't it, when you have somebody who gets you when someone who actually understands what's going on for you, when someone who understands you know, the issues that you're facing, it might be a friend, a mate, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a sister or brother in Christ. When someone actually gets you, that's so good, isn't it? It's the power of empathy that they understand a little bit what it's like to walk in your shoes, for you to be you. And imagine if, I mean, I hope you have someone in your life like that, like who actually just is a friend or a mate or a family member or someone in, in the Christian community, someone who actually does get you like that. Imagine, though, if that person was also able to fix whatever issues or problems you were facing with at the moment. If they actually were so powerful that they could meet any challenge that you had to face. I mean, if you had a friend who totally got you and then was able to fix your problems. Every time you had an issue, 
wouldn't you just go straight to them? Like, it'd just be a no-brainer, right? Just, you go straight to them because they understand what's going on for you and they can do something about it. Well, the good news of the Christian gospel is that Jesus is that friend. He is that friend for you. He gets you 100% and he wants to help. So we're going to look at that today. If you've got your Bible there, maybe open up to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. The very first thing we read there is, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and I pause there for a moment. Uh, the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus, and it's been talking to, the writer's been talking to us about Jesus a lot. But usually up to this point, he's been talking about Jesus as the Son of God, with God in the very beginning, who became the man Jesus Christ amongst us, then exalted back to God's right hand. This is, Jesus being talked about usually in the title Son, S-O-N, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's come from God. A couple of times, the writer has just dropped in, oh, Jesus is our high priest. He just sort of dropped it in. Chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 2, he's just sort of mentioned it, hasn't really explained much about it. That's now all about to shift as he goes along in this letter. He gets to this particular point from chapter 4, verse 14. He's now not going to talk about Jesus being the Son very much. He's sort of talked about that already. Now he's going to talk for quite a number of chapters, all the way to the end of chapter 10, about Jesus as our high priest. And what he's going to do over these number of chapters is he's going to sort of cycle through a bunch of different aspects of what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. So what we're going to do is we'll look at some of that today, some of that next week, and then we're going to look at more of it when we come back to Hebrews in the second semester. We'll look at different aspects of this as we go along. So we're not going to cover it all today. But the whole idea of Jesus being a priest, that's actually a little bit weird. Can you see that at all, really, up there? Or is the lights a bit too strong? Why don't we try and fix the lights? Maybe. That would be better? Yeah, great. So, um, provided I can still see down here. The whole idea of Jesus being a priest is actually not a very, a very comfortable idea because the whole idea of priests these days is not a very, it's not one that's got many positive associations. I mean, once upon a time, priests, believe it or not, were respected members of the wider community, once upon a time. But more likely, in recent history, priests have become sort of figures that are somewhat ridiculous, uh, like the priest in uh, The Princess Bride, just a, a ridiculous figure of fun. Or they've become, they're sort of caricatured as sort of socially awkward people, like Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice. But then, of course because of all the terrible stuff that has come out through the child sex abuse scandals. Uh, you might have seen the cover of Oni last week. George Pell hanging from a noose. And you know what? I get why. What's been going on, what's been uncovered amongst those who call themselves priests of God's church has been absolutely horrific, terrifying, really. It's been absolutely abhorrent. It's been terrible for the victims. It's been terrible for their families. 
and it has brought absolutely no honour to Jesus' name. It is completely abhorrent what has gone on. Thank God, genuinely, thank God that it has been exposed, that it has come out. Because this is terrible what has gone on and must be called out as such. Um, it's worth remembering as we sort of ponder how horrible behaviour of so-called priests of God has been that Jesus himself said it would be better to have a millstone, a massive big grinding stone, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause any little child to sin. Jesus is very clear. If any such evil is not exposed, if it's not brought to justice now, we know that God will certainly not let any such evil escape his divine wrath and fury. And we know it will be terrible because we know we all must give an account to the one true living God. So the whole concept of priesthood is now being understandably corrupted, tainted by what's gone on amongst those who call themselves priests of God. So that makes it difficult for us, doesn't it, as we come to read the Bible and it's talking about Jesus as a priest. Well, what we have to do there, just to try to take the, the Bible on its own merits, is we need to in no way disregard what's gone on. We need to pay due attention to what's gone on. But we do need to try to understand the Bible. We need to hold that, what's gone on, and try to understand the Bible on its own terms in what was, what was the role of a priest meant to be? What was it meant to be like? And so that's what we're going to try and do now. To try to understand, first of all, priesthood in the Old Testament. What was the role of a priest meant to be? Now, the background for understanding what is said of Jesus here as our high priest goes back to the Old Testament, and in particular, the, the setup for worship that the one true living God gave his people when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. You may know the story, they were slaves in Egypt. God did this miraculous rescue, brought them to himself at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, and God revealed to them, this is how you are to be my people, and this is how I want you to do worship. This is how I want you to worship me. And he gave them a whole setup, a setup that involved sacrifices and involved priests and involved a, a tabernacle, like a movable tent, which was, eventually became a temple. And uh, from that backdrop, the writer is going to help us understand Jesus a bit better. But we need to go back and try to understand a little bit about the tabernacle setup. So let me uh, try and draw something for you to how it was meant to function. So, here we go. Is that sort of making sense? Sort of? Complete blank, <laughs> complete blank looks. Okay, let me sort of explain what I'm drawing. Okay. Um, the tabernacle was a, a, a movable tent-like structure. It had a big sort of external sort of fence that was movable. They were carried, the God's people, the Israelites, were carried around with them as they were led around in the desert. And in the middle of the tent-like structure, the sort of the courtyard, was a, the holy place. 
and symbolically, symbolically, this is where the one true living God dwelt amongst his people. I mean, he doesn't literally live in the tent because the whole heavens cannot contain the one true living God who made all things. But symbolically, this is where he dwelt amongst his people in this section, the holy place. And around that was this courtyard. And in the courtyard, there were things like there was, you know, a, a, a washing sort of bowl thing and there was a, an altar there that they would, they could offer sacrifices on, etc., etc. Now, the, around the tabernacle was where all the Israelites lived in their different tribes. So if you're a member of the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, you're in one of 12 tribes. And as you moved around, your tribe had a particular sort of place that you would all camp together around the tabernacle. So the one true living God was dwelling in the midst of his people. You weren't allowed to just wander into this tabernacle area. The only people who could go into the tabernacle area were the priests. Here's the priests. They had big peas on them. No, they didn't. But anyway... They're in there and they're doing all the sacrifice stuff, which we'll talk about in a moment. But even the priests couldn't go into the holy place. The only person who could go into the holy place where God symbolically dwelt was the high priest. So we'll put a hat on him just to sort of indicate who he is. He was the only one who was allowed to go in the holy place. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. We'll talk a bit more about that. But what you'll notice is if you were not an Israelite, then you weren't even allowed inside the camp. If you were an Israelite, then you were allowed inside the camp, but you weren't allowed in the tabernacle. If you were a priest, you could get into the tabernacle, but you couldn't go into the holy place. And if you're the high priest, you can go to the holy place, but only once a year. The whole thing is about how close are you allowed to get to the one true living God? The big thing that's going on in this design is proximity. And proximity is related in the way God set this up to ritual cleanliness. Because the one true living God set this up deliberately like this to make a point to his people. The point he was making is, I, he says, am holy. I'm unlike anything else. I'm holy and I want you to be holy as my people, if you're going to be my people. And The thing is, God's people weren't holy. They didn't set themselves apart from everything else. They lived just like everybody else lived in the world. So God's got a problem. I'm a holy God, but I want to live amongst an unholy people. So what does he want to do? He wants to do that because he loves them. And so he sets up this system whereby he can live amongst them, but there's some necessary distance. Why necessary? Because if the unholy comes into the presence of the holy. What does the holy want to do? The holy wants to destroy things that are not good. And unholiness is not good. And so if the unholy is to come into the presence of the one true living God, he will necessarily seek to get rid of it, like you try to get rid of disease. So he sets up this system. So there's some distance. What might make you ritually unclean, which means you can't come close to God? All sorts of things if you read through the Old Testament. Things like if you have a wet dream, that makes you ritually unclean. And then there were processes and that you could become ritually clean again and then enter back into proximity with the one true living God. Or things like 
sat, you might have a relative die and you need to reverently dispose of the body. But touching a dead body actually makes you ritually unclean. So that doesn't mean you don't do it. Of course you do it. You, you care reverently for the body of your loved one. But it means that you're ritually unclean for a, a period. And so you go through the process that God set up to become ritually clean again. There were just all sorts of things that made you ritually unclean. And one of them was sin. When you said to God, actually, I know you've told me how to live, but I'm going to reject your word or your way, that actually also made you ritually unclean. And so you needed to go through an appropriate process. And what was that process? Well, then the priests would offer a sacrifice on your behalf. So you can see this now if we come back to the book of Hebrews. Let's have a bit of a look at it. Have a look in Hebrews chapter 5. Notice what it says, first of all. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters relating to God. So we have here a bit of a description of what the priests would do in the Old Testament. A couple of things. First of all, in verse 1, the priests represent the people and deal with their sins. They made sacrifices on behalf of the people to deal with their sin, to deal with their uncleanness, to make them right with God again. That's the first thing you notice. Second thing you notice here, read on in verse 2, verse 2 and 3, we'll read. He, the priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. That is, the priests didn't stand in judgment over God's people because they were subject to the same weakness as the rest of God's people. That is, they also were liable to give in to temptation and not live God's way. The priests were no better, really, than the people. And so the priests, when they offered sacrifices, had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, first of all, before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But the point the writer wants to make is that they could deal gently with God's people because they got the people that they were representing. They understood them. The next thing you notice in verse 4 is that they were called by God. Verse 4, no one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. You couldn't just decide to be a priest. You had to be appointed by God to the particular task. And they came from a particular line, from Aaron's line. And just pause here just to reflect a little bit on what we've seen before we think about how this helps us understand who Jesus is. We struggle a little bit with this whole Old Testament, partly because it's just so foreign to us. Um, but I wonder if the other reason we struggle with the idea of proximity and holiness and that we can't just wander straight away into God's presence, we sort of assume we can, that you can just... Anyone can just go to God. I think part of the reason we think that is because actually we're a culture that has some deep roots in Christianity and some of the very truths that we're going to read about Jesus and that he opens a way to approach God, some of that has just carried over into our culture even though we've left Jesus aside. So we just assume, oh, I'm sure I can just wander into God's presence. But if you were an Old Testament Israelite, if you lived in this, this was your life, you knew very clearly you couldn't just wander into God's presence. God made it very clear to you by the whole setup that we struggle a little bit now to think, why can't I just walk into God's presence? I do wonder, though, 
I do wonder whether the very fact of what we've seen with George Pell and the other terrible stories that we've heard about clergy sexual abuse, I do wonder if that hasn't relit our moral fire a bit. Because we know when we hear those stories that not everything is okay. There are things that are evil, that are wrong, that must never happen. And I think that helps remind us that actually that's not just something that we're making up. That's actually part of the moral nature of the universe, the way God has set it up. And this Old Testament setup was meant to communicate to people not everything is okay. Some things are wrong and need to be dealt with. So if this Old Testament system communicates anything to us, it does remind us that actually God cares about right and wrong. He doesn't just tolerate it. And yet, at the same time, he doesn't just abandon us, that he comes and does something about it so that he, out of his love, might dwell with us. So these priests, here they are, this is what they're meant to do. This then helps us as we try to think about Jesus. The writer then goes on to make the point, Jesus is the new and better high priest. Have a look in your Bible there at chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. First of all, he says, So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father, quoting from Psalm 2 there. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to worry about the Melchizedek thing today. We'll come back to that in a few weeks' time. But that's a quote from Psalm 110. Now remember, what had the writer said in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4? Priests have to be called by God to the role. What's he just established? Here, in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, you can see down the bottom here, that Jesus too has been called by God to this particular role. By quoting Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which were both Psalms from the Old Testament about the Messiah who was going to come, the King who would come in God's name, but one of them is actually all says of the King, you will be a priest forever. So the King will also be a priest. And the writer is saying, Jesus, this is about Jesus. That's where he's called to be this priest. He didn't just decide it himself. This was called by God to the role. But also, if you look at verses 7 and 8, you can see there, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Here, he's making the point, the parallel point, that Jesus can sympathise with our weakness. What is our weakness? Well, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 15, he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Whereas the Old Testament priests were subject to weakness, that is, they gave way to sin just like we all do, Jesus wasn't subject to that weakness, but he was able to sympathise with it. How come Jesus can sympathise with that, that weakness? It's because we're told he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Tempted in every way. Really? Jesus was tempted like I'm tempted to go against God at different times and different ways? Really? 
Well, the writer's saying, yes, have a look again at what he said there in verses 7 and 8. Notice he's, that he suffered for his obedience, even to the point of death. Verse 7, he cried out to God with loud cries and tears. Can you think of a time in Jesus' earthly life and ministry where he was struggling with temptation to that extent, that he cried out to God with loud cries and tears? Well, one of the times would be just before he was arrested at the very end of his life, there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read that three times he pleaded with God his Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. I do not want to go this way. I'll do what you want, but if it's possible, please take it away. And one of the Gospel writers records that so hard was his struggle that his, his tears were like blood. With loud cries and tears, he struggled to be obedient to God's will. You familiar with that struggle? Jesus is able to sympathise with all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way, just as we are. The difference being, he didn't give way in the end. He was without sin. Jesus gets it. He sympathises with your struggles. He gets you 100%. Notice God's response to Jesus. That's there in verse 7 and verse 9. Verse 7, he was heard. Verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. That is, Jesus is so much better than the earthly priests. The earthly priests who were subject themselves to this same weakness. Jesus understands you, he gets you, he able to sympathise with you, but he was actually able to chart out obedience. You're not speaking just to another person who met defeat. You're speaking to one who walked successfully in the path of obedience. He understands what it's going to take for you. He understands the cost of obedience. So much so that, yes, he has secured eternal salvation for all those who turn to him. If you want to see a summary here in the book of Hebrews, maybe just turn to chapter 7, end of chapter 7. There's a nice little summary in verses 26 to 28. The writer says, talking about Jesus, such a high priest meets our need. Jesus meets our need. He's one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from the sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the great high priest who meets your need. So, how does all this play out? So what? What can we say about this? Let's go back to where we started. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Verse 14, Therefore, says the writer, since we have this great high priest who's gone through the heavens, that is, he's not in the earthly tent, he's there now in, he in the heavens before God his Father, let us hold firmly, let us hold fast to the faith we profess. Remember who the writer is writing to. I've explained it the last couple of weeks. He's writing to a bunch of Christians, but who came out of Judaism. 
and they're finding it hard to be Christian. They're being persecuted for their faith and they're getting a bit weary from the task of being Christian. And so they're tempted to give up on the Jesus bit, go back to Judaism. Jesus is saying, so the writer is saying, why go back to Judah? Why do you want to go back to this? which was still functioning probably in Jerusalem in the temple when the writer wrote this. You want to go back to this? You've got a high priest who has gone through the heavens. So hold fast to him is the one you want to hold fast to in faith. And then he gives the reason. He gives a reason, hold fast to him in faith. But why? Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We are one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he was without sin. Jesus really gets you. He gets what you're going through. He gets your temptation. When you feel tempted to chuck it all in because being Christian, just following Jesus is just too hard, he gets that. When you feel tempted to go back to your pre-Christian ways, Jesus gets that. When you want to revert back to a religion that just has things a bit more rules-based because it's just easier to know what to do and how to stand, He gets that temptation when you're tempted to give in to that thing just one more time. He gets that. When you're tempted to indulge that desire for revenge or to bitterness or to jealousy, he gets that. Jesus experienced the depth of all temptation. I don't care what temptation you face where you might go, yeah, but did he really? Now, did he experience the temptation to cut in on somebody else when you're driving a car? Yes? No. (laughs) Not in his earthly life. He didn't experience that. But did he experience the deeper desire of the flesh that is being provoked in that temptation? Yes, absolutely. He has experienced all of our temptations in their basic most fundamental and powerful forms. He gets you. He gets you. But it's not just that he gets you, right? Where does the writer finish in verse 16? He wants to help you. The writer says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. Throne of grace. That's the very place where God is, right? Now, remember back in the Old Testament, that was symbolically approaching the holy place. If you lived here as an Israelite, how confident would you feel just going, oh, I'm just going to wander into the tabernacle and maybe I'll just go into the holy place. You, no, you know you, would, that you wouldn't do it, right? Well, how confident are you to just wander into the very presence of the one true living God, the actual, his actual presence? If I was writing the Bible, which would be a bad thing, but if I was writing the Bible, I would say, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with trepidation, much humility, and a lot of fear. That's what, I think that's what the sentence I would write. But that's not what the writer says. Because he understands that Jesus is our high priest who represents me, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with boldness, literally. With boldness. Not because of who you are, but because of, you know who Jesus is. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? So that we may receive mercy. For all those times that we've failed to do what God wants to do. All those times that we've actually sinned. So we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What's your time of need? Time is need when you know what God wants you to do and it's a struggle. 
let's approach the throne of grace with boldness so you might find mercy to help us in our time of need. How's that play out in your life? I'm going to do something a bit unusual. I'm going to play you a song. It's not a particularly Christian song, a secular song, except the, the guy who writes it, I think is a believer. Um, Lenny Kravitz is his name. Um, and I'm going to, yeah, we're going to give this a go. Alt-Tab, right? That gets me across. Yeah, Alt-Tab. Here we go. I'm going to play you this song. I'm going to put the words up. You might listen because I think there's reflections of what we've been talking about today in this song in terms of his own experience. So let's have a go at this. Oh, yeah. We're going to listen to this and then I'm going to say one sentence and then we're going to go.
Nice fade out there, you all right? Do you like that? Um, <laughs> Jesus gets you 100%. I walked away, but I was wrong. You're the one that keeps me strong. How will I get through this storm? At night I prayed. I've opened up my heart and want you to come through. Jesus is your great high priest. He gets you 100% and he wants to help you. So approach the throne of grace with boldness so you might receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Lord God, as we see throughout the Old Testament and in the world we live in today, something is not right. What is wrong is our sin. Whilst the priests of old are subject to sin, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, because he was tempted in every way like us, but did not sin. Let us hold fast to Jesus in the faith we profess in him. Let us then approach your throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in 